Information warfare has been a major concern of the U.S. national security state. In recent decades, one of the key battlegrounds in this information war has not just been the internet itself, but more specifically, social media networks. Social media in the modern era has become the equivalent of the town square, and these platforms have come to dominate much of the socialization and communication in Western society and beyond. Yet unbeknownst to most users of social media, there are longstanding efforts by social media companies, as well as the national security state, to influence social media users in a variety of unsettling ways, ranging from emotional manipulation to the propagation of specific narratives that benefit big tech and, more often, their benefactors. A major theme in my work for several years has been how big tech and the national security state have essentially fused Indeed, most big tech companies today double as military and or intelligence contractors, and many of these big tech giants have origin stories that are directly linked to those same military and intelligence agencies. In the case of social media, this fusion has also been taking place in ways that are both dangerous and insidious, especially now thanks to recent advances in artificial intelligence. One of the few writers who has been doing great work on this topic for some time is today's guest, Alan McLeod. Alan is a senior staff writer at Mint Press News, as well as the author of two books, including Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. He has contributed to sites such as The Guardian, The Gurizan, and Jacobin, and has also published several academic articles. Several of his recent investigations have worked to expose the increasing fusion of big tech in the national security states of the U.S. and Israel, including Meet the Ex-CIA Agents Deciding Facebook's Content Policy and revealed the former Israeli spies working in top jobs at Google, Facebook, and Microsoft. So thanks for joining me today, Alan. Welcome to Unlimited Hangout. Great to be with you, Whitney. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, it's summer here, so uh, nice and toasty down here in Chile. I'm hoping you're faring well in, in the UK. I hear it's been a bit cold up there this winter. Yeah, it has been, but uh, I'm bearing with it. All right. Well, good to hear. So, Alan... I'm uh, sure you've heard about how one of the big scoops of the Twitter files was to reveal the high number of national security officials working at Twitter. But when I first heard that, I went, hmm, wait a second. I'm pretty sure Alan wrote about this long before the Twitter files were even a thing. And indeed, you did last June in an article entitled uh, The Federal Bureau of Tweets. Twitter is hiring an alarming number of FBI agents. So what did you find back during your investigation? last June and has Twitter, even since the Twitter files, uh, has it changed its hiring practices under Emperor Elon? <laughs> yeah, so what I found was that basically, I, I'm not some sort of incredible um, investigative journalist with all these tools. This was really research done in a very simple way in which I just went to employment databases such as ZoomInfo and LinkedIn and started uh, Googling some things about who was actually on Twitter's board. Because, you know, we hear a lot about how, you know, Twitter pulls people from its platform or takes, for instance, Donald Trump away. But we never really hear about who is actually making the decisions. So I really wanted to know, and they're rather opaque about that. And what I found was basically that uh, 
An alarming amount of people in Twitter's upper echelons, particularly in politically sensitive fields such as content moderation, trust and safety, or security, are actually ex-FBI, ex-NSA, or ex-CIA. They are basically agents of the national security state. And very, very often these people actually leave their jobs uh, at uh, the government and then immediately are parachuted into the uh, higher ranks of Twitter, which suggests one of two things. Either that Twitter is actively recruiting uh, from these agencies, or that there's some sort of deal between the US government and big tech. Uh, there's some sort of quid, uh, quid pro quo going on whereby uh, Silicon Valley agrees to bring in these agents to help modify and uh, run these sites uh, to cleanse them politically or ideologically. Um, either of which seems to be very startling and hair-raising, something which more people should know about. So, you know, just as an example uh, of the sort of people that Twitter has been hiring, uh, in 2019 it hired Don Burton, who was poached from her job as the senior innovation advisor to the director of the FBI. She became senior director of strategy uh, of operations for legal, public policy, and trust and safety at Twitter. And there are dozens and dozens of examples of this going on. Since Elon Musk has um, come in, I don't think the hiring practice has really changed very much. Um, we have seen Musk firing thousands of people, but from what I can see, a lot of the spooks and spies that Twitter hired a year, two years, three years ago are still, for the most part, in their jobs. And that is, again, a little bit worrying, um, especially if you are under the impression that Elon Musk is cleaning house and is going to, you know, remove the deep state from uh, political interference. I really don't think that that's going on at all. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely clear from the evidence, and we can talk about a little later why um, that might be, because uh, you, as well as myself, have been some of the people pointing out Elon Musk's very close ties to uh, the national security state, uh, military contracting, and, and things of that nature. So one of the other things that was uh, a scandalous, supposedly scandalous revelation of the Twitter files was the collusion uh, between the FBI and Twitter, as well as, you know, what we just uh, what you just talked about, how Twitter is hiring a lot of former FBI people. But in your article back in June, again, well before the Twitter files, uh, you point out that uh, in September 2020, Twitter put out a statement thanking the FBI uh, for their close collaboration and continued support um, about protecting the public conversation. And then you note that a month later, um, I guess in October 2020, uh, the company Twitter announced that the FBI was feeding it intelligence and essentially issuing requests that, you know, uh, that certain accounts be deleted. And this is essentially the big revelation, one of the biggest, I think, in terms of how it was promoted, you know, revelations from the Twitter files. But here you are talking about it well before. So I'm very puzzled about how this was essentially out in the open. And then, you know, the whole Twitter files situation takes place and acts like it's, uh, you know, a sudden revelation, I guess, when, you know, people could have found this information or, it, you know, Twitter itself was essentially uh, promoting it. You know, you didn't need necessarily access to, you know, uh, private emails of executives to know that this was going on. So um, I'm wondering, Alan, what your uh, thoughts are about why someone, you know, what is the utility of making these revelations, but then, you know, keeping it as business as usual, essentially going back to the same model, like no revelation 
about the FBI's influence on Twitter had even been made. And it just seems a little weird to me. I don't know uh, what your thoughts are. Yeah, it really is remarkable, actually. Uh, what the Twitter files really explored and put a bit of meat on the bones that I've been uh, uh, putting out there for a couple of years was that we really have this absurd situation whereby current FBI agents will be monitoring social media and then phoning and emailing former FBI agents who work at Twitter and telling them to delete or demote or derank or delist certain uh, ideas, certain people, certain stories, etc. And this is actually going on pretty much uh, quietly in the shadows. And yet we still talk about Twitter as if it's a private company. This is like a quarter step removed from government control over uh, the means of communication. And it really is a First Amendment issue, and we should be talking about it like that. As you said in your introduction, Twitter and these big social media companies really are a global town square. And the fact that the United States uh, and its government has such a close uh, a close and firm grip over our means of communication really presents a national security threat to pretty much every other country in the world. Uh, why this is coming out right now? I mean, I actually talked to some of the journalists who were putting out the Twitter file stuff, and it did seem that they had been influenced by what I'd written. I think Elon Musk has his own agenda uh, when it comes to the Twitter files settling certain scores, but um, he really invited a whole diverse group of journalists in there who started picking apart and started looking at things that they were particularly interested in. And so I think once that door was opened, the floodgates kind of came through and perhaps some things that Musk maybe didn't exactly want out in the open have now come out. And those, for me, tend to be some of the more interesting uh, revelations from the Twitter files. All right. So what you just touched on a, a minute ago, I think is a really important point, because for a long time, the argument about social media and I guess content curation, you know, which is sort of a fine line between that and and censorship, the argument has been made, right, that these are private companies. So they're not, you know, public companies. And so if they were public companies, there'd be, you know, a certain amount of regulation there on what they can and can't do um, in terms of censorship because of what you pointed out, First Amendment issues. But what we essentially have uh, is Twitter and, of course, a lot of these other social media companies that we can get to in a second um, are very much populated with people from the government. And, you know, at this point, we know, at least in the case of Twitter, are colluding with people from the government. Uh, so it seems like that argument that these are just private companies, well, it's kind of hard to make that anymore. At the, at you know, at best, they're public-private. Uh, and at worst, they're, you know, just tools of the national security state. So this makes the whole censorship debate very... Uh, I don't know, a bit more complicated than it has, you know, it, it's been treated differently, um, you know, in the media for some time. But I think it's becoming increasingly hard to uh, maintain what is really, I guess, the illusion that these are just private companies operating onto, you know, uh, as independent private entities. You know, their tentacle, the tentacles of the national security state are intimately throughout all of these organizations. And I think your work speaks to that. Yeah, thank you very much. I agree completely with what you were saying there. It's very difficult to see the line at which the, you know, Silicon Valley ends and national security begins. These uh, organizations are now fundamentally intertwined to the point where it's very difficult to tell them apart. And this has happened over a number of years. You know, these big uh, platforms have been boosted by the US government. 
but it comes at a cost to the point where you know uh, we could talk about any of them but we periodically see you know sorts of um intimidation from the US government talks about regulating them talks about breaking them up you know there was at a point let's switch to facebook for instance that in 2018 people were talking about uh nationalizing facebook breaking it up and even jailing zuckerberg for his role in um you know helping crazy conspiracy theories elect donald trump as president uh, and just a few weeks after that, Facebook suddenly announces a new partnership with the Atlantic Council, which is NATO in all but name. Yeah. Um, suddenly, uh, Facebook's upper ranks are just filled with uh, these ex-NATO guys who are now deciding content moderation for 3 billion people online. So I think clearly there comes a point where these big Silicon Valley giants become too big to get ignored. And uh, that's kind of what's happening right now. Well, let's turn to Facebook for a second. So one of... Uh, one of your best articles on this topic, in my opinion, is the one you did about Facebook and uh, the ex-CIA agents deciding Facebook's content policy. And I was really blown away by this, uh, especially this Aaron Berman character, who is a former pretty high-ranking CIA guy. And of course, now he's gone to be one of the top guys at Facebook. So who is Aaron Berman? What's his background? And what is his role at Facebook's parent company? Well, I guess... If you're looking at Facebook's website itself, uh, Aaron, he's just called Aaron, is a very nice homely guy who wears purple sweaters and is in charge of content moderation at Facebook. He's basically the face of content moderation there. There's many videos on FB.com where you can listen to him chat in very well-lit rooms about his philosophy on content moderation and how important it is to allow a wide range of debates while also tackling hate speech. Uh, it's very important to him, apparently, to be open and honest about this. But the thing is, is that at no point does he or Facebook um, divulge that he was, until just a couple of years ago, one of the highest ranking members of the CIA. So until 2019, Aaron Berman was a senior analytic manager at the agency. Um, to the point where he was actually writing the president's daily briefs for President Obama and President Trump, meaning that that's the sort of thing that um, those uh, presidents would have read out to them every day in the Oval Office. So he was a pretty high-ranking member of the CIA. He was a mover and shaker there. And suddenly he drops that job at the agency and just gets parachuted into this extremely important position at Facebook to the point where he's essentially deciding what 3 billion people around the world see and crucially don't see in their news feeds. But when it comes to the CIA and Facebook, it's really not just uh, Aaron Berman. In fact, I was able to find dozens and dozens of examples of people just from going on places like ZoomInfo and LinkedIn and writing things like Facebook CIA in. And it is extraordinary the amount of matches you get. So, of course, that's not the full amount of people who are working at Facebook who used to be spooks. This is sure. just the people who actively and openly admit it on their social media profiles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most uh, extraordinary cases of uh, Facebook CIA collusion is Scott Stern. Um, until 2013, he was the chief of targeting for the CIA for the Middle East. And if you're wondering, what does that mean? Is, does that mean like he was deciding where drones get struck and which Yemeni villages get bombed? That is exactly what he was doing. But today, he is the senior manager of risk intelligence for Meta, where his targets are misinformation and malicious actors. 
And so it is really, I can barely think of a better example of the fusion of the national security state and big tech to the point where one can just, uh, one guy like Scott Skern can go from being one of the most important and, you know, uh, bloodthirsty members of the military industrial complex and is now sitting in a position in Silicon Valley where he is deciding what everybody sees all the time and what content you're allowed to see, what content mm -hmm. you're not allowed to post. It's really incredible what's going on right now. So one of the things that really stood out to me about Aaron, to go back to him for a second, is that in terms of how he describes his time at the CIA, one of the things he focused on when writing intelligence briefs for senior U.S. officials, including the president, uh, was the impact of influence operations on social movement, security, and democracy. So to me, that uh, suggests a, an interest while at the CIA in social media. Um, and then, of course, he gets headhunted and joins Facebook, which has a history of hiring people from the national security state, um, as you just pointed out. But also, you know, there's another uh, situation that I wrote about a few years ago uh, where they hired a former DARPA director, uh, for example, to be in charge of what was then Building 8. I think now it's called something like Facebook Reality Labs. Uh, they renamed it a year or two ago. But they they tend, uh, it, it, this is a long pattern for Facebook. And when one considers uh, the history of Facebook, um, and how it became the company it is today. You know, you have the really the guy that put uh, Facebook on the map is Peter Thiel, who at the same time he was uh, becoming the top investor early on in Facebook, uh, was also creating Palantir, which was designed to be a program, a, a software product, explicitly designed with the CIA in mind. This is uh, attested to by Alex Karp, Palantir CEO himself. Um, and, of course, Palantir for its th first three years as a company uh, exclusively works for the CIA. Uh, they go to CIA headquarters every two weeks. They're, they're product development managers uh, to have the CIA tweak their products. You know, very close collusion there. And then at the same time, you have um, uh, that same network developing Palantir for the CIA, you know, developing Facebook to a significant extent. Um, and you have people not just like Peter Thiel, but the guy that brought in Peter Thiel to Facebook, Sean Parker, who uh, was recruited by the CIA after uh, as a teenager, actually, because he was involved with Napster for people that remember that um, as, a, as a teen and then uh, admits it himself was approached by the CIA as a result of that um, situation. So it's just interesting to see. Facebook, um, and some of these other social media companies in light of the fact that a lot of their origin stories uh, have these elements there as well. And if you if you follow it, it's continuous from their inception as a company to now. And it really makes you wonder um, about social media in general, because um, I've written a lot, for example, about um, a program that is now defunct, of course, it didn't really get off the ground, but it was um, pitched and was going to be implemented by DARPA, specifically the Pentagon's research arm after 9-11 called Total Information Awareness. And they tried to rename it later Terrorist Information Awareness uh, to sound less like, less like a giant machine of, of dragnet um, surveillance. And Total Information Awareness uh, was trying to get Americans essentially profile them based off of uh, data about their daily lives, where they're going, who they're meeting, uh, things of that nature. And some of the programs that were related to this, uh, you know, like the LifeLog program was shut down in 2004. It looks an awful lot like Facebook today. Um, and I think 
What's interesting about looking at companies like Facebook and Palantir and how they come out of uh, similar networks is that, you know, a lot of the uproar about, about total information awareness was that the military was directly involved. And Peter Thiel and some of these other guys gambled correctly, I think, that people would willingly give up their data if it was seen as a purely private enterprise and not as part of the state. Um, but what your work has shown and some of this earlier, you know, some of the earlier history shows as well, is that it was never really a private venture from the off in the way that most people have been told, you know, uh, told about it. These origin stories, a lot of these Silicon Valley companies, whether it's true or not, you know, a lot of people imagine it as, oh, these these guys were just tinkering in their garage in California and all of a sudden pops out this giant company. Well, for Google, we know that's fake. For Facebook, we know that's fake. So um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about that, Alan, about, you know, the utility of this uh, for the national security state, you know, from the off? Was this something uh, that some of these companies were intended to do from their uh, inception, you know, for the national security state? Or was national security fusion something that, that came along later? Uh, well, I guess it depends on which uh, example you're going to pick. Certainly, I think it's pretty natural that coming out of the internet that we are have these machines that uh, really appear in our homes in the 90s and 2000s across the world. There was this incredible uh, potential for connection and community to be built. And so I think some level mm -hmm. of social media was kind of natural that this was always going to happen. But who actually rises to the top of the pile is not necessarily completely random. Uh, I think in some cases, uh, the sort of rags to riches story of uh, these um, these platforms is pretty much true. But uh, in other cases, as you pointed out, uh, it's really not quite the case. There's a lot more going on. And a lot of these uh, companies did have their hands held by the national security state uh, from the outset. I don't know too much about Facebook's origins. That was very interesting what you were saying. But I have written at length about Google's origins. And so a lot mm -hmm. of people really are not aware of how Google really fundamentally started as a CIA project. In fact, uh, Sergey Brin, his research at Stanford University, according to a great investigation by Dr. Nafiz Ahmed, showed that um, the CIA and the NSA were bankrolling his research there and mm -hmm. that uh, his research there would later produce Google. Not only that, they weren't only bankrolling it, but his um, his uh, his supervisor there was a CIA person. So the CIA actually directly midwifed Google into existence. In fact, until 2005, the CIA actually held shares in Google and uh, eventually sold them, which, you know, if we're going to talk about business deals, probably not a great idea to be selling your Google stock in 2005. But OK, whatever. Um, so we've seen... Well, if you don't want to be seen as directly linked to the company yes, going I, forward, then that's probably why you I do it. And I did true. forget to mention that the CIA also was the, the big investor early on in, in Palantir besides Peter Thiel. I guess I left sure. it out. Another commonality between them. Um, but but go on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, um, when we talk about Google uh, with the CIA, uh, we have to talk about a company called InQtel, which is the CIA's venture capitalist for arm. A lot of people will be surprised to know that the CIA has a venture capitalist arm. But yes, uh, InQtel has midwifed and birthed and helped uh, nurture a huge amount of big tech and other uh, important high tech industries in the United States. The point of it is, 
from the CIA's perspective is they go around finding small companies, or maybe not so small as well, but companies that are on the cutting edge of various technologies and try mm-hmm. to work with them and develop them and get a comparative advantage over their rival countries like Russia and China so that uh, the national security state of the United States can stay one or even two steps ahead of its rivals. And for a small company that's uh, just starting in California, say, the draw of working with the CIA is huge because that is like an unlimited uh, source of money, basically. It transfers a lot of, uh, you know, kudos to your company, a lot of uh, governmental backing. It, you know, more, I don't want to say it ensures success, but it certainly makes the likelihood of you succeeding in a very competitive and uh, difficult industry to break into, uh, it makes it much more likely. And so I can see it from both ends why companies would want to work with the CIA and InQtel and why InQtel would want to work with these companies. Well, I think it's important to point out really quick about NQTEL that it's it you know it's it's definitely the CIA's venture capital arm. Of course, the CIA claims it's fully independent, blah blah blah. But if you actually look into how NQTEL structured, um, that's not really so. But the thing I did want to point out is that um, NQTEL, from its inception, has had a very close relationship with weapons manufacturers, um, because the person that created NQTEL for the CIA was uh, the exec- top executive at, what, uh, at Lockheed Martin. I think it was Lockheed Martin, actually, at the time. I went through some mergers in the 90s uh, to become Lockheed Martin, uh, the company it is today. Uh, but it was Norm Augustine was the guy that was in charge of Lockheed Martin at the time that the CIA chose to tap to create NQTEL for them. So an interesting connection worth worth keeping in mind, because as I mentioned uh, earlier uh, in in the intro for this podcast, a lot of these companies, uh, specifically Google, uh, is are major contractors to the U.S. national security state, whether it's the Department of Defense or the intelligence community um, or, you know, several intelligence agencies, like in the case of Palantir that I talked a little bit about earlier, um, all 18 U.S. intelligence agencies contract with Palantir. So... You know, it it makes sense, I guess, for them that there would be some sort of re- revolving door there. Um, but it's just uh, stunning when you start to get uh, engaged with this this type of information and this research, um, the extent of the overlap. And I really think there's no word we can really use for it beyond fusion. You know, it, you really can't tell where one end one ends and one begins at this point. You know, maybe you could potentially a decade or two ago, depending on the company. But but these days, you know, it's really hard not to see them as one and the same. Um, so as since you were talking about Google, you, of course, have also um, written about um, Google in some of your recent work, uh, meaning last year, uh, you wrote National Security Search Engine. Google's ranks are filled with CIA agents. Can you tell us a little bit um, about your article there and what you found and what the implications of that are, given that Google is essentially a, a monopoly on major um, on major facets of how uh, people around the world access information, particularly uh, through the supremacy, I guess, of their search engine. Yeah, sure. So again, not uh, an investigative journalist with a huge amount of resources. Again, this was literally just publicly available data on uh, social media sites like LinkedIn, just typing things like CIA Google and seeing what happens. And I was absolutely astonished by the dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, results from people who are clearly Google employees in uh, high positions who are openly admitting that they were once CIA agents. 
this is the sort of thing that, uh, you know, you would have been laughed at 20 years ago for even considering, but it seems to be a total reality now. What's a bit more interesting and a bit more nefarious about this is that when you actually go through uh, these uh, Google employees that were ex-spooks, none of them are really being uh, uh, put into positions of political unimportance. They're not working in fields like marketing or customer service. They're going into fields like trust and safety, security and content moderation. And so that really clearly suggests a political uh, motive for these sorts of um, these sorts of hires. I mean, if you look at you know uh, the people who are actually involved in trust and safety, it's uh, very important to understand who these people are. So you know, just an example, Jacqueline Loper. She spent more than ten years at the CIA, where she served as a leading U.S. government expert on security challenges in the Middle East in her own words. She joined Google in 2017 and is now the Senior Intelligence uh, Collection and Trust and Safety Manager. So she's basically in charge of uh, intelligence and the brains of Google, as you might be able to say. Another CIA employee uh, between 2010 and 2015, Jeff Lazarus, was a political analyst at Langley. In 2017, he was hired as a policy advisor for trust and safety at Google, where he works on suppressing, quote, extremist content, unquote. Uh, he now works at Apple doing a similar job. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of examples of these people who uh, now work at Google, uh, who formerly were CIA agents who have just been parachuted into these positions of extreme importance. And this is all happening silently. You know, we're, we've been talking about Facebook and Twitter, and to a certain extent, if you're not on these platforms, you can ignore them. But Google is really too big to ignore. Totally. There's no way that your life uh, isn't affected by Google. It's something we use daily, even if we're not really, you know, super online. Uh, what you know, what comes up in a Google search has huge implications for how people think, for political movements, for public opinion. The sort of power that Google has over modern society can barely be over, um, oversimplified and you know oversaid. This company has become a behemoth in just twenty years to the point where it might be the most important and influential company in the world. Yeah. And so it's close uh, it's close ties with the US national security state should really be alarming people in all over the world especially uh, foreign governments who often rely on Google for neutral and uh, professional services all the while they are entrusting their data and uh, all of their most important information to a company that has intimately close ties to Washington, D.C. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really astounding when you think about Google's influence. So, you know, you have search, which we've talked about, and around the world, most people, including where I live in Chile, you know, it's Google dominates search, period. Most people use also here uh, Google's browser Chrome. Um, and of course, if you don't have an iPhone, most people have a Google-enabled Android phone. And the only way you don't have Google on your phone using an Android is if you use a de-Googled uh, Android operating system like Graphene OS, which a lot of people, you know, uh, don't know how to really set them up, set themselves up with an operating system like that. So you have a lot. I mean, Google really is everywhere. And in, in addition to that, what gets left out a lot, of course, is YouTube. 
um, which is uh, owned by Google and managed by, I guess, the sister-in-law of Sergey Brin, um, because he's married to forget her name, the, the Wojcicki sisters. So the head of YouTube is one of those sisters and the other sister is, uh, well, there's three sisters, but one of the, one of the other two is, uh, married to Sergey Brin and runs 23andMe, the, um, <clears throat> DNA testing company. So YouTube, as people know, uh, <laughs> obviously listening to this podcast, uh, was probably even more censorship happy, uh, since, uh, I don't know, 2016 or so as Facebook and Twitter, um, if not more so, and one of the people that you list in your article that's, um, you know, she went from working for the CIA for over a decade as a political and leadership analyst. She is now uh, the intelligence analyst lead uh, for trust and safety at YouTube. <laughs> so she's, you know, the person essentially saying this is who we censor. These are the topics we censor and these are the ones we don't. Um, and that's a, you know, a longtime CIA veteran right there. And it's, uh, I don't know, pretty astounding. I mean, you would think if so many people were scandalized by some of these Twitter files revelations we talked about earlier about collusion between the national security state, more specifically the FBI, um, and the social media company Twitter. Why would they not be concerned about the CIA and Google or any of these other companies like Facebook? It seems, um, I don't know, it just seems a little weird that the, that the discussion was so limited on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I don't want to pick on anybody uh, because I'm sure, you know, the people that were writing that stuff were focused you know, on the revelations themselves, but at least some people reporting on that, if not the people that did the original reports themselves, could have pointed to how this is a uh, industry-wide problem. You know, this is not exclusive to any one social media network. You know, this is really what's going on with all of them. And I would consider YouTube to an extent social media because it's um there's a lot of engagement with comments and people posting back and forth. And a lot of people um, for years have used YouTube as a substitute for cable television because, of course, cable news viewing has gone down. YouTube views have gone up. It's become, you know, in, for many people, essentially a replacement for TV to an extent. Um, and, you know, that adds another level to its dominance of, of information. And it's really not surprising you'd see the CIA there because, you know, a, a quote attributed to people like CIA, um, uh, former CIA director William Casey, the CIA director under Reagan, uh, was about the need to have large, wide-ranging disinformation campaigns uh, to manipulate the American public. National security policy unimpeded because it would uh, be against some of the sensibilities of the American public at large, which, of course, you know, that type of behavior on the part of the national security state has not changed um, since the 80s or before then. Uh, but obviously having a tool like Google, if you're the CIA, is something that's going to be uh, incredibly useful uh, for you as an agency. But it's frankly very, uh, very disturbing when, as you note in your article, we have people like uh, former CIA directors like Mike Pompeo being like, yeah, we lie and we cheat and we steal. Like, that's normal here. Um, so, you know, uh, and of course, not to mention the CIA's litany of his historical crimes uh, against humanity and even against American interests, not to mention the interests of, um, you know, other uh, states and, you know, election integrity in other countries, election meddling, what have you. Um, and what's worth pointing out, too, with Google is I don't remember the specifics of it so much, but I do know that back during the Arab Spring events of 2011, 2012 or so, 
uh, Google played a major role in a lot of that, from what I from what I remember, um, and efforts to sort of manipulate infor, uh, in what information was being seen to boost certain uh, oppositional movements in certain countries and things of that nature. Uh, Google played a, a major role in that. And during that same period of time, you had DARPA uh, funding extensively uh, social media for the purpose of strategic communication. And we can talk a little bit um, about that later. Uh, but some of this eventually made its way into The Guardian and other newspapers about how the U.S. military studied how to influence Twitter users and DARPA-funded research focusing specifically on manipulating Occupy Wall Street protests and then protests in the, in the Middle East, specifically referring to um, the Arab Spring. So this is something that's been going on um, for a long time and is obviously, I think, you know, from what I've laid out here, pretty clearly insidious. Um, but I'm wondering, Alan, what your thoughts are about how how this type of activity, this pattern of activity and how entrenched these agencies are in these companies today. Um, how do you see that uh, impacting things from here on out, specifically when we're considering that the technology they've been utilizing is much more advanced now than it was 10 years ago? Yeah, I think uh, if we go back 10 years and uh, the reason YouTube grew was uh, as a YouTube, by the way, started off as a competitor to Google sure. Video, which mm -hmm. was Google's uh, own brand YouTube, which failed uh, to really catch the public imagination. And the reason it grew was because it was an alternative to what you saw on the television. It, there was really a golden age for people who were working in alternative media could put up videos on there and get real traction and you know really reach a broad public build an audience and do really well and it was absolutely shown when the algorithms back then were much more neutral people would click on the alternative media stuff rather than the stuff from CNN or Fox or CBS or whatever specifically because it was of a higher quality and people would be actually covering topics that you couldn't see uh, if you just turned on a television Unfortunately, that golden age really came crashing to a very quick halt in the wake of the 2016 election, whereby the Clinton campaign and many others besides and the intelligence community as well claimed that uh, basically fake news on the internet sponsored by uh, foreign powers, specifically Russia, was the reason that Trump was able to beat Hillary Clinton. And in the wake of this, we saw YouTube, Google, Facebook, and all the other big social media platforms change their algorithms radically to promote what they said was um, authoritative content and suppress what they called borderline content. But the problem with this is that the outcome of this wasn't to kick away really low quality conspiracy theories. What it was was ultimately uh, the uh, opportunity and, uh, yeah, the opportunity to kick away high-quality alternative media websites that had been kicking the ass of corporate media on the internet yeah. for years and years. So, for instance, the outlet I work at, Mint Press News, lost over 90% of its Google search traffic and more than 99% of its Facebook traffic within a period of just a few months. Yeah. Even much more established websites like The Intercept lost 19%, Democracy Now! lost 36% of its uh, Google traffic overnight. And so what I really understand this big algorithmic change that happened in early 2017 to be was basically a coordinated campaign which was uh, in the interests of big corporate media and uh, the Democratic Party and also the national security state to kind of re-tighten their grip over the means of communication, which had really been 
uh, flagging for the last 10 years with the rise of the internet and the fact that social media really did um, offer an alternative place to try and get information, news and views from. So unfortunately now we've seen, uh, as we've been laying out for the last 20 minutes or so, the real sort of um, a power play from the US government trying to retake control over the means of communication. Unfortunately, there's very few people talking about this, so I think it's probably gonna get worse rather than better. Even though when people do talk about this in print or online anywhere, there is a lot of interest from the public because I think a lot of people sense that this is kind of going on, but they don't actually have the details. Yeah, I think that's that's fair to say. But the problem is, you know, a lot there's so much dependency for communication now on a lot of these platforms that I think even when people uh, who use them become outraged, they're like, well, what can I do about it? I either uh, stop participating it, you know, stop using these platforms, but then I can't communicate with people or or watch this content or do this or that, you know, because, you know, th there are alternatives for YouTube, right, uh, that I think are becoming increasingly more common. Uh, but some of them, too, like Rumble, for instance, is very much aligned with one particular political ideology, um, which tends to be those who feel most censored by YouTube, for example. Uh, but there are some robust alternatives there. But for things like Twitter and Facebook, uh, there have been efforts to create alternative social media networks. I mean, there's loads of them at this point, but none of them have really ever uh, caught on. And it seems like people have sort of become dependent on these platforms in a sense. And um, that's not necessarily good if you wish to change major aspects of their uh, of their policy or hiring practices and things like that, or um, you know, you're opposed to them fusing with the national security state. You know, it's kind of hard as a as a single user to really have any influence on 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 those decisions. So, um, Alan, if it's okay with you, I'd like to turn to another social media network that we haven't talked about yet, which uh, does tend to crop up in alternative media to an extent, but largely over uh, claims of its utility for you know uh, the Chinese, I guess, uh, military industrial complex, uh, TikTok. So, for example, most people are probably familiar with sound bites here and there from. Joe Rogan, another uh, podcast of that type, talking about how TikTok is basically a surveillance machine, um, though unfortunately uh, for people like that, I would say they, uh, to their detriment, ignore the fact that, you know, the NSA, for example, and other, um, you know, surveillance companies uh, on the other side, surveillance entities on the other side uh, are very much in bed with uh, some of the social media networks and social networks and other companies we've already talked about today, like Facebook and Google, you know, going back to the some of the revelations from Edward Snowden and others was that, you know, a lot of pretty much all of big tech was openly collaborating uh, with the NSA with very little complaints from the private side about, you know, essentially undermining American constitutional rights. But anyway, you know, the claim is often made about TikTok in, in, that, in that lens that, you know, it's being used by the Chinese government for the purpose of surveillance. Uh, but what you notably pointed out in your article, the NATO to TikTok pipeline, why is TikTok employing so many national security agents? Uh, there is, of course, a lot more to this narrative, uh, as, as the title pretty much points out. Um, TikTok is hiring um, a lot of former intelligence people. And uh, I don't know. Why do you think that might be, Alan? <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, in, it's interesting to note that TikTok is one of the only major social media networks, in fact, the only one that is not actually an American company. We like to think of social media networks as these kind of uh, 
transnational entities which don't really def are not defined by borders and they're you know international uh, conglomerates but in reality they usually have bricks and mortar homes in uh, Texas or California and they are subject to American laws. TikTok was a little bit different uh, because it was started by a Chinese company, ByteDance. And I think because of that, that really uh, sparked huge, huge concern in the United States that perhaps TikTok wasn't going to be as au fait, wasn't going to be as easy to manipulate as uh, the other ones. And so in 2020, you might remember this big push by the Trump administration to force TikTok to even sell uh, its pretty much its entire business to an American company like Microsoft or Oracle or face being totally shut down in the United States. In fact, uh, the company actually had secured a deal with uh, Bill Gates for, uh, I can't remember the exact amount, but Gates was basically going to buy the US operation of TikTok to keep it afloat. Suddenly, though, this uh, big hysteria over Chinese surveillance of your kids was just dropped. It was like almost overnight, we just stopped hearing about it. In fact, Gates himself was very surprised to hear that his, um, his purchase of the company was basically nixed, and he didn't even know why. And uh, I didn't know why as well for the longest time. But I did start to put two and two together when I started to look at who is actually being employed in the higher echelons of TikTok. What I found was that at exactly the same point that the US government stopped making noise about TikTok being a Chinese surveillance tool was exactly the same point whereby uh, a ton of people from NATO and other um, big national security state organizations were being hired by TikTok into very important roles in the company to run its most important operations. And again, like Google and Facebook, they weren't being employed in marketing or customer service. They're being employed in content moderation to control the algorithms in trust and safety and in security. And I think one of the people that I think is most blatant and probably is worth knowing about is uh, Greg Anderson. So according to Greg Anderson's own LinkedIn profile, until 2019, he worked on, quote, psychological operations, end quote, for NATO. Oh. And uh, <laughs> he left his job and immediately got put into TikTok as the new feature policy manager. So basically, you know, deciding what sort of policies the company would, uh, would go ahead with. And Greg Anderson is just one of many, many people I've found, all of whom are working in these politically sensitive fields at TikTok at exactly the same point that the US government stops making such a noise about TikTok being foreign controlled. Now, is the Chinese government perhaps, you know, has some sort of backdoor into TikTok? Well, maybe that is possible. It's not like they're averse to surveilling their own citizens. So, you know, perhaps that's the case. But really, this is a case of a huge, enormous example of the pot calling the kettle black here. The real danger mm -hmm. in terms of surveillance comes from the US government and not some foreign entity. And that's the thing we should really be focusing on if we are Westerners ourselves. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair to point out. And it sort of makes me think also, though, of... Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google. Uh, he's been described by the New York Times as the new Kissinger, meaning Henry Kissinger, which is unsettling. Uh, but he actually wrote a recent book with... Um, with Kissinger 
um, about the future of AI and what it means for the world. And Schmidt also um, had previously it's uh, concluded its work now, but uh, had headed the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which was basically a meeting of intelligence agencies, the military and big tech. And what they had argued and sort of what he argues with Kissinger's um in his book with Kissinger, is this idea that in order to avoid war with China, uh, there should be an effort to essentially bring together. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about how the national security state and big tech in the U.S. have been fusing. Um, He wants to, uh, what he talks about when he talks about China, Eric Schmidt, is that he wants to advance that fusion even more. And he's sort of refers to China as that, you know, talking about what they a lot of left a lot of times these people in the US government refer to as the civil military fusion model. But it's really not any different than what has been going on in the US for some time. There's just sort of like a semantic difference or how it's publicly treated that makes it different. But what Schmidt is trying to say is that in order to avoid war with China, this national security state big tech fusion in the US, that nexus, should merge with the equivalent in China. Uh, and that we should develop this sort of system together, which is a bit odd, isn't it? When you consider that a lot of the same um, entities within that National Security Commission, you know, for example, are very much into the brinkmanship between the U.S. and China, this idea of of pushing us toward, you know, World War III and some of the stuff that's ta- uh, touched on, for example, in, in John Pilger, uh, Pilger's documentary on the coming war with China. You know, there's a huge segment of that in the national security state, but then you have these big tech people like Schmidt, who are very much plugged in uh, to the U.S. government right now. And they're, you know, looking to sort of have, I guess you could say, groups like TikTok work much more closely, you know, with uh, sort of their equivalents in the U.S. So in the case of what you're talking about in this article, you have, you know, TikTok Canada and TikTok U.S., you know, these are subsidiaries of this Chinese-based company um, that's been accused of being, you know, a surveillance tool, but it's it's merging essentially with some of these uh, actors relatively, you know, very much enmeshed with the national security state. I mean, it's pretty um, it's pretty weird. And to me, it ultimately speaks to how some of these people just, uh, you know, want to see this model, I guess, sort of expand for the purpose of controlling information, not just in, in the U.S., but beyond. And also how a lot of these countries around the world, uh, regardless of what side of the political divide they may be on are very interested in developing any sort of technology, regardless if it's from enemy state number one or whatever, you know, if it serves them for the purpose of, you know, domestic control, they seem to be increasingly on board with that kind of stuff. That's very interesting. I haven't seen Eric Schmidt's new book. We should actually just say that Schmidt actually left a job and the national security state to become CEO of Google. And while at Google, he (laughs) took a job at the Defense Department as well. So he's yeah. fundamentally mm-hmm. very closely revolving door guy. Yeah, he's yeah. very closely linked with Washington. I have read another book by Eric Schmidt. It was called The New Digital Age. It came out in 2013. And in it, there's this incredible quote that I use very often when he's talking about um, what information technology really is. Schmidt says, and I've got the direct quote here, what Lockheed Martin was to the 20th century technology and and cybersecurity companies like Google will be to the 21st, end quote. Hmm. And so what he's saying there is that uh, big tech is the ideological tip of the spear for the US empire going into the 21st century. So before it was all about 
the power of the US military, and now it's all about the power of US social media and the tech industry in general that will further advance Washington's interests. And I think that's maybe what we're seeing here. Uh, as, as regards to China, I really don't know. It does seem much more likely that the US is uh, preparing for war with China rather than cooperation. But, you know, perhaps cooperation would be... Uh, well, I'm not I'm not saying that they're, that view is necessarily going to win out. I just find it interesting that there's people like Eric Schmidt propagating that idea, you know, within their specific circles. And you, ha you have Kissinger sort of saying similar things because he's, you know, styles himself these days as sort of like a China expert. Um, and it's this idea that this is the only way to avoid war. That's the claim anyway, made by these guys, you know, how influential that is on a military industrial complex that spent billions and, and, uh, devoted a lot of time and energy to putting bases all throughout the Pacific and NATO bases all around Russia for some sort of power competition war at some point. You know, I think it's pretty clear that there's a competing interest there, but it, it's worth pointing out that that is a a policy vision that's been articulated by some of these people that stand at this sort of this area that bridges big tech and national security. I just think it's worth, um, you know, pointing it out because you do see some sort of collaborations, it seems like, between entities you wouldn't expect, like NATO and the U.S. national security state and TikTok, based on the narratives that most people are familiar with, you know, it seems illogical to some, perhaps, why that collaboration might take place. Right. Oh, yeah. But listen, uh, the, the social media is now enormously important. It really decides what we think about, what we see, what we don't see. It informs everything about our being. And so whenever an entity becomes this powerful, it's natural that powerful organizations, whether they're corporations or governments, will start to look at that and try to understand how they can hack it, how they can use it for their own uh, benefits, or how they can even infiltrate it. And that's what we're seeing right sure. now. Yeah, good point. Okay, so uh, in coming up to the last bit of the podcast, I, there's a couple other articles of yours, well, really one in particular that I definitely wanted to touch on today, um, which is about a company called Graphica, spelled with a, a K at the end, uh, and you call it the deep state's beard for controlling the information age, which I found um, pretty amusing. But Graphica is uh, doing all sorts of stuff, as you note in the article. They're cited very frequently by mainstream media. Um, their um, claims are usually um, without any sort of analysis on the part of mainstream media, just repeated um, as fact. And as you point out, they have a lot of national security uh, connections and all sorts of, uh, you know, weird, uh, weird things about them, I guess. Um, I, I'll throw it to you to sort of explain what Graphica is and, and its importance. Uh, but there's actually, um, as we can talk about after, uh, there's a lot of companies trying to fit this exact same mold that, that Graphica um, is, you know, the niche it's sort of created for itself. There's a few other companies that are, are quite similar. So uh, who is Graphica? How are they tied up to the CIA? And, and how are they influencing uh, you know, in what information is able to be accessed by people today. Oh, sure. So, I mean, if you read corporate media, you will understand Graphica as this private, uh, <clears throat> people-led intelligence operation, which is really shining a light on the dark corners of the internet and trying to do good in this world. Uh, they describe themselves as the cartographers of the internet age. So basically, they are this trendy Manhattan company that does sorts of investigations, uh, supposedly to try and bring around more freedom online. 
But that, when you start looking into the company, starts to really crumble. Uh, not only because of who is working for the company, but who is actually funding this company as well. So first of all, they have very glitzy offices in Manhattan. And it turns out these are being paid for by the Pentagon's Defense Advanced uh, Research Projects Agency, DARPA. Oh, DARPA. And the mm -hmm. Department of Defense, and also from grants from the US Navy and from the US Air Force as well. They've also had uh, funding from the Atlantic Council, which is NATO in all but name. So it's really quite uh, remarkable where this money is coming from. That already should start um, raising alarm bells in your mind. But when you actually look at who works for Graphica, it becomes clear that these people are just ex, uh, you know, military intelligence or ex uh, national security state agents going back for many years. So, I mean, one of them, for example, is the head of investigations, Ben Nimmo, who is, you know, he is absolutely notorious. He was actually uh, NATO's mm -hmm. uh, press officer for many years, and he's now head of intelligence for Facebook as well. So again, this is, uh, you know, this fusion of think tanks, of social media, and of uh, the national security state all at once. We've got <clears throat> so many people, when you look at who actually works there, his strategy executive is Chris Bain. He spent 24 years at the CIA, then seven years in the US Army, and then moves into, you know, working for this, you know, people-led, you know, private organization, which is shining a light on everything. Joanne Perry spent three and a half years as, as a CIA intelligence analyst before moving to Graphica. Lauren Penchek, uh, who was, who is Graphica's vice president of financial and operations, worked at the NSA. In fact, she became the director of corporate strategy at the NSA. She also worked for Northrop Grumman, and now she works, you know, at this place. So there are just dozens and dozens of examples of extremely spooky characters working for Graphica. And when you look at the reports Graphica pump out. It's all about Russian interference in uh, U.S. society or Chinese interference or Iranian or the threat from Iran or Venezuela or whatever. And ultimately, when we see this, this is basically propaganda about propaganda is what I'm saying. There is a huge state-led effort by the United States to try to convince Western publics that there is an enormous state-led uh, influence operation going on uh, at the hands of Russia or China or Iran that is really the perfidious and it's the source mm -hmm. of all sort of conflict in the United States. It's not the internal class contradictions. It's not the fact yeah. that uh, people at the top of society are stealing trillions from people at the bottom. It's actually just pesky Russians or pesky Iranians, <laughs> you know, sending well, fake memes around, which has got people so uh, worried and anxious. Well, the the idea of that narrative, though, is is completely insane on its face because the it's the idea that people that don't agree with the official government line of the U.S. and like a, a, its allies are must be foreign, you know, bots or like you know people paid for influence by foreign entities. When there's plenty for people living within the U.S. or the U.K. or any of the Five Eyes countries to be in an uproar about how their governments are behaving and, and doing, you know, whether it's foreign policy, domestic policy, whatever, it's essentially, uh, as I've written about in the past, it's a, it's in a way, it's a war on dissent um, by claiming that, you know, um, anyone that propagates narratives that are deemed unfriendly to the state are treated as 
foreign adversaries or at least adjacent to foreign adversaries, which in, you know, remember in this in the concept in the context of this being an information war and information warfare and all of that, you know, those narratives are the enemy. So it doesn't really matter if you actually are affiliated with the foreign countries or you're just a regular person, you know, it's the narrative they want to target. And if they have to use a broad brush to paint everyone as a Russian bot or a Chinese spy or you know, what, whatever fits, you know, they, they tend to do that. And I think it's very insidious because um, this is actually in the Biden administration's policy papers uh, for the war on domestic terror. It frames any sort of narrative that undermines trust in the U.S. government as, you know, essentially an act of domestic terror, uh, which is just totally insane. Uh, the idea that the only way to not have domestic terror is to have everyone in the U.S. agree about everything I mean, it's just nuts because the whole idea is that this is all, all this has to be done, they say also, to the protect our democracy. But if you're homogenizing discourse and making everyone have to say the same stuff, how democratic is that? There's nothing democratic about that at all. Um, I don't know. Your thoughts, Alan? Yeah, this sort of tactic is actually quite an old one. You know, if anyone's involved in the peace movement, they'll know that, uh, you know, people who were criticizing the U.S. government's role in starting the war in Iraq or trying to campaign against that actually happening were called secret lovers of Saddam. They were doing Saddam Hussein's work. They they loved the dictator. Or maybe if it was in Libya, they were, you know, secret admirers of Gaddafi. Or if it was in Syria, they were talking about, you know, not wanting the US to get involved, they were actually an Assadist. Now, very few people who were criticizing the US government over these things, Americans, I mean, actually had any love for these uh, three characters. But that was the, the uh, paint which was used to tar these movements. And if you go back even further, it goes on, uh, if you were criticizing the US government's role in, let's say, Latin America in the 1980s, you were secretly a red and you were a communist agent, this is how Martin Luther King and the whole black liberation movement of the 60s was tarred. They were secretly communists. They were getting direction from the Kremlin. And so this sort of uh, McCarthyist nonsense really goes back for decades and decades, if not centuries, in the United States. But we are seeing a new kind of uh, twinge to it, a new um, spin on this in the digital age. And as we're seeing a sort of slow decline of American power, this, I suspect, might get worse and worse rather than better. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. So to add what you said about Graphica earlier, uh, I sort of mentioned a little bit there that there's a lot of other companies trying to do similar things for, for the same entities. And one of the groups that I've written about in the past has been this company called Primer or Primer AI, which... Um, in 2020, uh, became a contractor for the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Special Operations Command. And uh, in that press release, it says, uh, Primer will develop the first ever machine learning platform to automatically identify and assess suspected disinformation. So that's a very interesting term, suspected disinformation, because based on what you know, we just laid out, if you are saying anything that is against the government line, right, as the narrative has been set up, you can just be treated as a Russian bot or whatever. So essentially any narrative that runs counter to the state narrative can be treated under these metrics based on what we've seen thus far as suspected, suspected disinformation. You don't actually have to have proof it's disinformation, only suspicion must be introduced about what you're saying for primer AI and the Air Force to take it uh, you know, take it out of the the news feeds and and whatnot. 
And they're a very, uh, just like a lot of the companies you've talked about, they have a very large amount of uh, CIA and uh, NATO people and all sorts of, uh, you know, connections like that. And in this interesting uh, blog post that was published by um, Primer's founder in 2020, who, by the way, his name is Sean Gorley. I think he's a New Zealander. But what he did before Primer was uh, he created AI programs for the U.S. military to track insurgency in post-invasion Iraq. Yeah. And so now he's turning that to uh, domestic disinformation campaigns. And he says that he said in April 2020, computational warfare and disinformation campaigns will in 2020 become a more serious threat than physical war. And we will have to rethink the weapons we deploy to fight them. Uh, he then goes to argue that there must be a, quote, Manhattan Project for Truth. Yeah. Where he says there should be a Wikipedia style database uh, written by countries intelligence agencies uh, and that's going to be the baseline for what's true or not. So that's pretty insane. And then at the end of the blog post, his last sentence says, in 2020, we will begin to weaponize the truth. And this is a guy, you know, this company is working with social media, um, all sorts of uh, other companies that are very much involved with uh, the information people can and can't access. Again, you have NQTEL, backing these guys, as well as uh, Mike Bloomberg and a lot of people that previously were involved with Iraq War, the Iraq War surge, people tied to neocons like the Kagan family, uh, Air Force Intelligence, U.S. NATO. I mean, all these guys we've been talking about are the people that stuff um, primer AI in this effort to go after disinformation. And in the context of the Air Force being the contracting group for primer what I find interesting, there's this 2014 article from Ars Technica. It says, Air Force Research, colon, how to use social media to control people like drones. Pretty interesting. Uh, basically turn people into uh, robots that do their bidding, I, I guess, is what I sort of get um, <laughs> uh, from that headline. But you have this idea from Primer AI that intelligence agencies need to decide what's truth or not for everyone. And it's uh, conveniently a company stuffed with former intelligence agents. And now the Air Force is contracting it to manipulate uh, what, what is seen on social media networks using AI. And previously, the Air Force wanted to use social media networks to turn people into, you know, their robotic drone-like slaves, I guess, is how it comes across. I mean, it seems pretty insane. Um, the, the efforts currently underway and using AI, which of course is everyone knows by now is advancing pretty steadily, uh, not just to uh, censor, but to alter people's perceptions with the end goal of uh, essentially brainwashing them, I guess you could say, um, so that they're easier to control. I mean, it's very insane and insidious. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm blown away that more people don't uh, see social media for what it is. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Alan? Well, there are so many hangers on uh, these private companies that we've been talking about that are setting up, uh, you know, collectively, they're usually set up in the outskirts of Washington, D.C. as a think tank in the, the region I call Raytheon Acres, which, uh, you know, basically, they're just trying to get that money from uh, defense contracts. And now they seem to have pivoted towards this sort of misinformation angle. You know, they're all offering to be the guardians of truth, despite the fact that they have no qualifications to do so. And what I found so <clears throat> insidious about this whole Russian bot narrative, meaning that if you say something that uh, goes against the you know collective uh, will of the Beltway in Washington, that you're labeled a Russian bot, is that to bring it back to what we were talking about uh, earlier, the Twitter files, uh, the Twitter files have really 
<clears throat> blown the lid open on this Russian bot narrative to the point where we now know, because we have the emails, that even people who are in positions at the very top of Twitter realized that this entire Russian bot narrative from the beginning was completely baloney, really. You know, the uh, the emails from UL Roth talking about ha this Hamilton 68 dashboard, which was this... Mm -hmm. um, which was this uh, program that was designed to find hundreds of Russian bots spreading misinformation. UL Roth was talking about this, the head of Twitter, saying that this is complete and utter horse BS and that we have to, you know, push back against it. That's what he was saying in private, but in public he was going along with the narrative that, oh yes, Russian bots are a problem. When you actually look at who was on this list, almost all of them are Americans and, you know, quite easy to figure out who these people are and you can, you know, give them a direct message and talk to them. Most of them are on the sort of Trump right, but there were some on the left as well, like people like Joel Laurier, the, the head of From uh, Consortium, Consortium News. News. Uh, yeah. So this kind mm -hmm. of happens, this kind of feels like this whole prop or not thing all over again, yeah. which was this 2016 <laughs> thing where a whole bunch of outlets got labeled Russian propaganda, despite the fact I think most of them were, you know, based in the United States and had were very obvious who they were. So I just think this is just a latest chapter of this ongoing yeah. information war that goes on. And it's important that uh, people keep abreast of it because otherwise they will be fed, filling their heads with all sorts of misinformation. Yeah, and not just that, but it's a, it's a war on people like you and me and other people in independent media uh, that challenge these narratives. Uh, there's major efforts to take us out of play, you know, whether it's through censorship or, you know, financial censorship or, you know, uh, what you mentioned earlier with what happened with Mint Press's um, Google traffic. Well, I was working at Mint Press when that happened and it was just crazy. Um, the amount of manipulation and how it can just be used to censor your reach and how your information gets out there. I mean, it's it's really um, a war on, on independent information um, on a massive scale. And the people behind it are... Um, I think pretty clearly uh, up to no good. I mean, they're certainly not up to, uh, you know, democratic value, the democratic values they claim to be protecting, right? Um, which is about, you know, what makes a, the U.S. democracy great, the First Amendment, free speech, all of this stuff. I mean, obviously, there's an effort to make it only the free speech condoned by these powerful entities um, in the American government. And, you know, obviously some of their, their allied states, I just find it very... Um, very unsettling across the board. All right. Well, I think we've been going for some time now, Alan, and I want to thank you a lot um, for your for your time today and for, of course, your your important work on these on these matters, because I you know, like I said earlier, I don't think there's just um, enough coverage about what's going on here, because ultimately, when you consider the extreme power that Silicon Valley and big tech and also, of course, Social, social media networks have on our society and to have essentially the CIA and a lot of these intelligence agencies or entities uh, with an awful track record, whether it comes to human rights or democracy or propping up the worst governments in the history of the world, dictatorships, what have you, you know, these are the people uh, running this operation. And most people are unknowingly, you know, uh, in this, in this, what is essentially a war viewed by the national security state as a war, but they're unaware that they're in the middle of this war, um, which is ultimately a war for our hearts and minds, uh, and a war over over human, you know, on human perception, essentially. And anyway, just thanks a lot for everything you've done to bring this uh, to light, um, because you know the Twitter files did some good in that sense, but really your work even before those. 
and, and despite of it, has uh, done a lot more, I think, to really show uh, the true nature of what's been going on here. So thanks a lot, Alan. Thank you. It's great to speak with you. Likewise. So any, uh, how can people follow and support your work? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, we've been uh, ragging on social media for about an hour, but uh, I'm still on there <laughs> myself. You can find me on Twitter, Alan R. McLeod, A-L-A-N-R-M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Or if you're on Instagram, I'm alan.r.mcleod. But the best way to actually uh, find my work is to go to mintpressnews.com and uh, bookmark it, just like in the old days. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe Mint Press also has an RSS feed. So I've talked about this in some recent podcasts and in my recent AMA for subscribers. Um, so RSS feeds, if you're not familiar, please look them up. It's a great way to curate uh, your own censorship-proof newsfeed equivalent, taking big tech out as uh, of the middleman as, as you know, the arbiter of what you see and what you don't see, and a good way to sort of uh, fight back against a lot of the unsettling trends uh, that we've talked about today. So I know that Mint Press has, an, has the, uh, the ability to be tied to an RSS uh, feeder uh, app, just as Unlimited Hangout does and a lot of other uh, websites around there. So consider adding Mint Press uh, so you can, uh, to you know, your RSS feed if, you, if you'd like, because Alan's work in a lot, uh, is, is great and a lot of other people at Mint Press, of course, doing important work. All right. So thanks a lot, Alan. Uh, again, appreciate your time and your work. And thanks to everyone so much for listening, especially people uh, that subscribe to Unlimited Hangout and make this podcast possible. All right. Thanks so much, everybody, and catch you all in the next episode. 